Have you noticed how one of the hardest things in life is keeping the main thing the main thing? Have you noticed that? It is tough. We all know it's really important, but we find it so easy at any given moment, squirrel, to be distracted from the most important thing. Uh, let me, here's a serious example of how important it is to keep the main thing the main thing. Raise your hand if you have ever had a distracted driver cause you problems on the road. Raise your hand if you've ever had a distracted driver cause you problems on the road. Yeah, you actually have. You just didn't know it. Um, a young mom friend of ours uh, sent me a perfect illustration just this week, sent me an illustration of how hard it is to keep on track. Look at this. This conversation she had with her three-year-old son, the mom says, you know what, buddy? What? I love you. You know what, mom? What? I stopped raining. <laughs> it's awesome. It stopped raining. Not I love you now. I left out a little stage direction. The poor little guy, look at this, right at that point where he said, you know what, mom? And he was going to say, I think, knowing the kid, he was going to say, I love you too. But at that moment, he heard the dog bark, and he looked outside. And when he looked outside, he noticed it had stopped raining, right? He got distracted. What he saw outside was interesting. It was even important. But it wasn't the most important thing, was it? There is nothing. Listen, boys, there is nothing as important as your mommy, right? He got distracted. He lost sight of the main thing. Thank goodness we're never like that, right? Or are we? We get consumed with many things, interesting things, even important information. They're not necessarily bad. Some of these things are even very good. However, they're not the main thing, are they? Deep down, we know it. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for a reminder about the one thing that matters most. 1 Corinthians, uh, you can find it in your New Testament uh, just after Romans, shockingly, just before 2 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's go to verse 3. Read verse 3. For I passed on to you, says the Apostle Paul, that... Uh, pass on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Stop there. As we summarize in your notes, this is the main thing. Uh, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see that headline. This is the main thing. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. This was a city famous for its distractions. Uh, Corinth was actually is very much like the area in which we live. Um, it was incredibly wealthy, blessed with low taxes and high growth, and uh, obsessed with unhealthy sex. That was Corinth, and that's us. Corinth, by the way, had another thing in common with Frisco, Texas. It, it was a place of serious sports mania. Corinth hosted the uh, Isthmian Panhellenic Games. Say that three times fast. Uh, Frisco, Texas is a site of many professional sports teams and was recently rated the number one place in America to raise an athlete, right? Sports are awesome. God made us fast, and when we run, we feel His pleasure. But sports are not the main thing. Now, that's hard for an old coach like me to say. It's hard for you to hear, but take a deep breath and listen to it again. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Paul tells us in verse 3, he's passing on truth he received. You see received? It's a, it's a Greek word, parlambano. Parlambano is a really important term. Listen. Parlambano describes a serious education where a Greek master teacher imparted critical information. Um, Plato and Aristotle made this term really famous, and it carries significant meaning to Paul's audience in Corinth. When, when, when the audience in Corinth heard Parlambano, they, they, thought, they thought this. They thought it means that you're entrusted with something unadulterated and faithfully safeguarded. Unadulterated, faithfully safeguarded. This this is an education that is concerned with verifiable proof. Parlambano does not mean, I figured out what I want X to mean. You can save that for your excuse for a university education. That's not the truth, right? 
Parlambano means I found the real meaning of X. I have discovered what is the constructed actual truth that was safely handed down to me. Now, I know not many of us read Plato these days. So think of Parabonato like this. Think of it as Gandalf saying, keep it safe, right? Okay? That's, that's Paralambano, keep it safe. It is vitally important that the truth about Jesus be safeguarded and unadulterated. That way, every generation has opportunity to receive the real truth about Jesus. The main thing, the truth about Jesus is received. And that truth includes this, Jesus died, the Messiah died. Specifically, verse 3 says, Messiah Jesus died for our sins. When our daughter was small, she was fascinated with animals, loved animals. So one night, she and I decided to watch an animal show on TV. TV was a very rare treat in our home. She was so excited to see the animals. We turned on a wildlife show just at the exact moment that a baby wildebeest was being attacked by a bunch of crocodiles. My daughter got very, very intense, and I thought, I'm going to leave this on because the baby's going to get away. The baby didn't get away until dad appeared. And, and, and some male wildebeest came out of the herd, which was moving away, came out of the herd, came back, and he went in among the crocs and starts, and the, the daughter relaxes, yeah, the daddy's going to save and, and, uh, and the baby starts to get away. But then, really weird moment, you realize that there are so many crocs, and they're so powerful, that they're still going to get the baby anyway. So the dad, this was fascinating, you could see it was a willful choice. You could just see it in his head as he looked around. He decided to move further back in among the crocodiles, get them all to follow him so that the baby would get away. A willful sacrifice. It was really beautiful. Not so much to my little girl, but thankfully, the camera, just as it was starting to get pretty tense, and I'm about to turn the TV off, the, the camera pans back. It leaves the dad who's being chomped. It leaves the dad, and it goes back to the baby who has run up on the, on the edge of the, of the Serengeti and is running back toward the, where the rest of the herd is very distant, only to be attacked by a pride of lions and ripped to pieces. I'm not, I couldn't turn the TV off fast enough. Oh, my goodness, kid is screaming. Actually, I think Jessica started to hit me in frustration. We were absolutely stunned. Now, I bring that story up for two reasons. Kids, number one, TV is bad for you. It, it, it makes you cry and hit people. Uh, just say no. Uh, actually, seriously, number two, number two, and this is serious. Even a being, even a being who gives their physical life for you doesn't achieve anything of lasting importance. Only Jesus died for your sins. He didn't just save your physical life. That's nice, but that only lasts until the next attack when the lions get you. Jesus took your spiritual place. He paid for your sin. That substitution is more than just a physical sacrifice. It lasts forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 summarizes this so beautifully. Read it with me. Everybody together, just line by line, let's read together. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Amen. Amen. Christ, that's Greek for Messiah. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You see that part? This was premeditated. It had been planned all along. Now, Paul doesn't specify exactly which Scriptures he had in mind, but there are many from which to choose. Uh, here's one. Psalm 22, David says this, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That is exactly how Jesus' crucifixion unfolded, according to 
the scriptures. Here, here's just one more. I only have time for one more. Isaiah wrote a whole series of songs uh, called the Songs of the Suffering Servant. Beautiful, beautiful uh, songs. And chapter 53 of Isaiah says this. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, that is precisely what Jesus' death achieved. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried. Go, go back to our text. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Stop there. Jesus was truly dead. That's why they buried him. Of course, there are some hilariously absurd theories you may have run into these. They try to dispute uh, Jesus' burial and subsequent resurrection. Uh, one of the most popular is the old swoon theory, the idea that Jesus, he just passed out on the cross. He never really died. He was only mostly dead, right? Uh, and mostly dead is partly alive. That, there, that is so absurd. I just want to tell you this. Even anti-Christian scholars laugh at that idea. Let me show you a cartoon. A friend of mine drew a cartoon to show the silliness of the swoon theory. He writes, maybe Jesus didn't die. Maybe he just passed out on the cross, then woke up in the tomb, pushed over the two-ton stone by himself, overpowered the Roman soldiers, and escaped. April Fools. Doesn't happen, all right? Another goofy standby is the hallucination theory. You know, the, idea, the idea that all the people in Jerusalem merely thought they saw Jesus die and, and be buried. That doesn't gel with any of the historical situation, nor does it gel with the psychology of mass hallucinations. Besides, besides, think, all anyone had to do to prove that Jesus' death or burial or resurrection was a hoax was produce either the dead body or a living Jesus who had not been tortured and crucified. That's all they do is produce the body. But no one could because he was crucified, dead, and buried. The only reasonable truth is that Messiah was raised from the dead, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The right side of our notes has that headline. The only reasonable truth is that Messiah was raised from the dead. On the third day after his death on the cross, Jesus rose from the grave. N.T. Wright is a theologian and historian with whom I sometimes differ, and yet he is spot on regarding the resurrection. Look at his, his quote. I liked it so much I put it in your notes there. Look, the historian may and must say, that all other explanations for why Christianity arose and why it took the shape it did are far less convincing as historical explanations than the one the early Christians themselves offer. That Jesus really did rise from the dead on Easter morning, leaving an empty tomb behind. Close quote. Jesus rose according to the Scriptures. This was also predicted. It was a natural outflow of what God had decreed and revealed. We, we lack the time to go through all the Old Testament Scriptures that, that promised Jesus' Messiah would rise. So let's do this. Let's just look at, at Jesus' own words. Uh, Jesus appeared after his resurrection to two disciples. They're walking on a road to a town called Emmaus, and this went down. Luke chapter 24. He said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and thus enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scripture, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures. This is not the same 
It's not even similar to any other mythical story about the resurrection. Some of you were told in school by fairly uneducated people who should have known better that this is just the same as other ancient resurrection stories. It most certainly is not. Look, there were a number of mythical resurrection stories in the ancient world, uh, many before Jesus, but in every one of them, here's what you need to understand. The person, the God, it was always a God, or a demigod, who was brought back from the grave was always pieced back together. They had decayed and they had to be put back together. So like Osiris is one you'll hear a lot. He actually had Frankenstein kind of stitches because Isis, his sister slash wife, really creepy, don't want to go into it, um, she, she stitched him back together. Also, all these resurrections, they, didn't have, they, weren't, they were never really fully alive. There were two different ways they, they went. Sometimes it was that they were only alive part of the year, and then they had to go back in Hades the rest of the year. Sometimes they had kind of a half like, oh, they walked around saying, Bud Light. They, they were not really alive. And then the third thing is they were always released by death's power. They had to have Hades' permission. Death had to give them permission. Sometimes there were other powers involved, but it was always death that gave them the freedom. Not so Jesus' resurrection. Look, he has a whole physical body. He eats after the resurrection. It's a creature-perfect body. He is completely alive in creature perfection, and he conquered death's power. He didn't get any permission. Oh, no, in fact, it was the exact opposite. He conquered death, right? Yeah, there were resurrection stories in the ancient world, but none of them were like this. They were all considered mystical or legendary or promissory. No one, listen. I mean, absolutely no one really believed Baal rose in a physical perfect way. No one believed that Osiris or, or Heracles or Dionysius or Mithras raised from the dead liked Jesus. At best, they were considered half alive because of death's power. That's why the, the Greek thinker and writer Aeschylus, he declared in the 5th century BC, and I quote, no one has come back to full life from the dead and no one can, close quote. By the way, it's really telling that when Aeschylus said this, he was not in any way charged with blasphemy in Athens. Isn't that interesting? They had their own Dionysian idea about resurrection, but nobody really thought of it as real resurrection. So this was not blasphemy. That was considered fact. Again, Dr. Wright summarizes really well. Look what, look what Wright says. We are forced to conclude that when the early Christians said that Jesus had been raised from the dead, they were using the language in its normal sense. That which Aeschylus said couldn't happen to anyone had happened to Jesus all by himself. That was what they, the early Christians, intended to say. And say it they did. Look at all the witnesses. Go to your next uh, verse in your text. And that he appeared to Kephas. Um, this is a nickname. Uh, Kephas is a fun little Greek uh, nickname. It, 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 Cephas is the head. That's why we have a whole class of animals that have really large heads. In the ocean. we call them cephalopods. Uh, and it's a way to describe Peter. Because he was the head of the, of the disciples. So he appeared to Peter, to Kephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, Paul says, he also appeared to me. Look at this exhaustive list. Jesus is seen alive by Peter by the 12 disciples, by a crowd of more than 500, by James, who is Jesus' half-brother, and then by all the original sent-out ones. That's what apostles means. It means somebody sent out, the original sent-out ones to start churches, and finally our author, Paul himself. Only Paul wasn't called by his Roman name Paul when he met Jesus. Do you know that? He, he then went by his Jewish name, Saul, or as he would have said it, Shaul. And when Jesus appeared to Shaul, Saul was a hostile witness. 
He was one of the many who were hunting down and killing Jews who had trusted Jesus as Messiah. It was in that situation that Jesus revealed himself to Saul as the risen Savior. That changed everything for Saul. He became Paul, the last to hold the office of apostle. In fact, that truth changes everything, not just for Paul, but for every one of us. Read, read verses 9 and 10. Look at the end of our text. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not ineffective. As we point out in our notes, it is the one thing that lasts. God's grace extended to us through the resurrection of Jesus. It is the one thing that always lasts. My pulpit team partner, David Wade, wrote me an excellent observation. He wrote me and said, Wayne, we as a race are consumed with the desire for an abundant life. If you look at our culture, the passion is everywhere. But sadly, people are looking in all the wrong places. Jesus and the life we have through belief in him really is the most important thing and the only thing that lasts. All God's people said, how can Paul say, I am what I am? Paul is what he is. He's an apostle of God because he is changed by the one thing that remains, God's grace. The grace of God lasts. The resurrection of Jesus never really ends. It goes on through all of us in resurrection life. A generation ago, a really talented poet named, named Rich Mullins, he put the idea this way. He wrote a poem he titled, One Thing. He said this, everybody I know says they need just one thing. And what they really mean is that they need just one thing more. And everybody seems to think they've got it coming. Well, I know that I don't deserve you. Still, I want to love you and serve you more and more. He talks to the Lord and says, you're my one thing. Please save me from those things that might distract me. Please take them away and purify my heart. I don't want to lose the eternal for things that are passing. Because what will I have when the world is gone if it isn't for the love that goes on and on with my one thing? Jesus' resurrection changes everything because it delivers God's grace that conquers death forever. This is the one thing. This is the most important thing. Here, here another picture. Danny Craig and some friends of his wrote about this, uh, about Jesus' death and resurrection, how it changes everything. Uh, they called their poem, Your Love. Higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave, constant through the trial and the change, one thing remains. Yes, one thing remains. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. In death, in life, I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. My debt is paid. There's nothing that can separate my heart from your great love. Amen? And this is true no matter who you are or what you have done. Paul, understandably and appropriately, knew that he was undeserving of God's grace. Wise people, wise people always realize that they are unworthy of, of the substitution of Jesus. Perfect God the Son substituted for imperfect people like us. This is paramount to understand. One does not become good enough to become a Christian. That is impossible. One recognizes the, the power of the gospel of Jesus, his death and resurrection for undeserving sinners. And then one trusts him. We cannot, listen, we cannot transform ourselves. God changes us by His grace through faith in Jesus. I received a very moving letter recently. Um, it came from a person in a closed country. This person studies the Bible with us online, as many do. Uh, because she's in a closed country, we'll make up a name for her. We're going to call her Lee. And she writes and says this. Dear Pastor Wayne, I've wanted to be a Christian for years. I know that God is holy. I see in the Bible that I'm not. I've tried so hard to be good enough for him, but I always fail. I assumed God's salvation is not for someone as bad as me. 
She goes on. Then I studied Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when you taught on it. By the way, Romans 5, 8 says, But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. She goes on. And I realized Jesus died for me, sinful me. He rose for me. He loved me when I was completely not lovable. I know that and believe that. As you like to say, that made all the difference. Lee is right. No matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus' death and resurrection can make all the difference for you. It changes everything. Look at Paul's amazing understatement in verse 10. Verse 10. But by God's grace, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not ineffective. Isn't that nice? Not ineffective. God's grace is effective. A member of the United States Secret Service walked into my office one day at church. He was in town with the president. He heard me teach on the radio, and he made an appointment and came to the church. He wanted to talk. This, uh, this wonderful poor man, who was a former special ops men- member, and he was tormented by the people he had killed. Now, whether they had been taken care of according to scripturally and legally acceptable laws or not, uh, he was very, very troubled, and he was convinced that since he had killed people, God's grace could not be big enough to cover his sin. I listened to him, and then I challenged him with this text. I took him to the same text we're studying today. And I told him to try God and see. I I said, let me give you a challenge. I want you to trust Jesus who is much stronger than you or your sin. And I want you to see if God's grace is effective. Trust Jesus. Choose to read his scripture and see if you find, let's do this. See if you find after one month that God's grace is effective for you. He said, okay, I'll take that challenge. Three weeks later, it wasn't even a whole month, I got this note. It was a very short letter. It just said, wow, it is. God's grace is effective even for me, signed Marco. Hmm. And it's effective for you as well. You, my friend, are no better or no worse than Paul or Lee or Marco or me. You need God's grace just as we do. Pray with me. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray for those who are studying with me today that are not believers in Jesus. Maybe, maybe they're like Lee. Maybe they're trying to earn their way to heaven. Maybe they're like Marco and they think that the resurrection doesn't apply to them because Jesus' grace can't extend to them. Maybe they're like I was, somewhere in between. Please draw them to you. Friend, listen, Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He is fully God and he is fully man. He died on a Roman cross. He, the ultimate alpha male, gave up his life on purpose. He drew all the crocs, not so you could be saved just for a moment, but so that your sins could be paid forever and you could be rescued forever, a part of God's family forever. Trust him. Stop believing on whatever you've been believing on. You know, some people these days even try to believe on nothing. Whatever it is, set it aside and believe the truth. You can pray. You just talk to God and just say, I trust Jesus. I receive Him as my Savior. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand, please. Let me rejoice with you. Amen. Praise God. Thank you. Now, Father, I want to pray not just for these new believers, but for all of us who are Christians here that we will keep the main thing, the main thing. 
Paul was writing to Christians in Corinth. He calls them brethren. These are Christians. And just like me, they, they needed reminding to keep this foremost, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm pretty well convinced that my brothers and sisters need the same reminder. So I present this request. Please keep giving it to us every day. Please keep giving us the good news every day because we are so easily distracted. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.